Welcome to the Housing Journal podcast, a collaboration between the three best housing journals, Housing Studies, Housing Theory and Society, and the International Journal of Housing Policy. In this edition, we're bringing you some author interviews about state-led financialization, the possibilities of a global housing studies, and dwelling justice in settler colonies. We also have news of a new editorial team at the International Journal of Housing Policy. I'm Emma Power, editor at the International Journal of Housing Policy. First up, Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society talks with Javier Gil Garcia and Miguel Martinez Lopez from the Institute for Housing and Urban Research at Uppsala University. They're chatting about their open access article, State-led Actions Reigniting the Financialization of Housing in Spain. So I've been catching up on some very interesting reading lately. And um, in the first issue of Housing Theory and Society, the very first article, whoa, state-led actions reigniting the financialization of housing in Spain. Fantastic reading. And um, I know that this has already been, um, of course, downloaded by many of you because it's a um, open access article. And in fact, it's got an enormous readership already and it's been cited extensively. So good news for our authors and we've got them in the studio. So fantastic to have uh, um, Yaviel uh, Gil Garcia and Miguel Martinez uh, Lopez with me. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hello. Thank, thank you for inviting us. So terrific to have you. And um, let's just start from the beginning. So what what do you mean by um, state-led? Why is state-led financialization? Why is this particular focus so important? Gabby? Well, we think uh, the state has a crucial role in the financialization of societies and of housing, and it always did. And we explain in this paper that the Spanish case is very clear of the strong role, how the state is an, a very important agent. Without the state, there is not a housing financialization. In Spain, it's a very good example because in 2008, the financial and housing sector and the whole economy crashed. But after 2014, all of a sudden, rental prices started to increase a lot and people had problems to pay their rents. We had a lot of displacements, a lot of evictions, and then we had new actors such as Blackstone, such as Cerberus, Lone Star, who entered the Spanish economy and started to acquire huge amounts of housing portfolios from the Spanish banks. By the way, the Spanish banks who had a lot of liquidity problems and they were these uh, tra transferring these their housing portfolios to the Blackstone and so on, was helping them a lot. And the politicians, the media, they were presenting this process as, uh, as very good, that it was natural, that it was the market evolution. The market as an agent, which it has nothing to do with the economy, with people's lives and so on and so on. So basically what we identify in this work is to say, no, it was not the market. It was a state intervention which has very specific interest in order to rescue the banks, to restart a new real estate boom, which was all this empowering the people, the population. So basically what we identify is how in a very short, uh, um, in a short period of time, some policies were simultaneously adopted from different state institutions 
to revert the, the economy and the real estate and housing cycle? Yes, um, I think that um, one of the key motivations for us to focus on state actions is that the market never works alone. There is no free market. This is an illusion. So we as sociologists don't believe on that. And we try to, to grasp to what extent uh, those private companies and agents and banks are always asking for policies from the state to help them, to facilitate their business. And that's what different governments can behave in different ways and give different responses to that. But we are especially concerned because when there is a huge problem of housing affordability in a country and, and prices are going up and up and the government is, is not doing anything, this is really crucial. Even not doing anything is problematic. So we are trying to trace back all these actions, these particular policies um, uh, and regulations that the government did. Yeah. Okay. You, you use in particular the concept of a policy package. So, you know, um, how did you determine what was in that package and, and how did you go about, through your research, abstracting from the day-to-day -day happenings, which, you know, are many, many, many events and meetings and so on. How did you focus on what you thought was important in this package? Yeah, I think that this is also a kind of theoretical concern for us, which is also one of the aims of this journal, is trying to uh, move on in terms of understanding how we uh, explain the phenomena in relation to housing. And then we came across this concept because we were thinking that many actions of the state are not visible and some of them are not very explicit. But we believe that there is some kind of coordination. That's what we call a strategic coordination. And some policies in particular are not only related to finances or to economic policy. They can be articulated with many other means, like, for example, the regulation of uh, tenancies, of rentals. And sometimes some operations like privatizations of social housing apparently have nothing to do with anything else apart from uh, cash in for these uh, companies, public companies. But we believe they are all interrelated in different ways. It's impossible to know all the connections because we don't have access to all the invisible uh, decisions and meetings that politicians and developers uh, hold. But we still believe that there are indicators of this coordination. And we believe that in certain particular periods, especially when it, it, it's the time to crisis management and the government of crisis, uh, uh, this policy package um, becomes very active and important. And this is something that we as scientists need to rebuild to society in order to, to change it, because it's not, uh, um, it's not subject to accountability, it's not legitimate, and it's not good for democracy and, of course, for the common good of people. One of the impacts that you were particularly concerned about was the distribution, for example, of wealth accumulation or uh, rights as well. Perhaps um, you know a uh, you could you could zero in a little bit more about why you think that is something that researchers are you know should be interested in or should be conscious of. Yes, um, I think that sometimes uh, um, we are very concerned 
in order to scrutinize what the governments are doing in relation to housing, because housing is a human right. And it depends very much on the distribution of wealth in society. And we cannot allow the market to behave freely or to be just supported by governments in order to do whatever they want about housing. So we believe that these actions, this disinvestment in social housing, for example, or privatization of social housing, or the lack of protection for tenants are quite crucial in both the macroeconomic structures of society, but also in the daily lives of people uh, trying to cope with housing problems. So in that respect, this um, uh, analysis that we are making about this particular period and these particular policies is can reveal that we need to do something either from the civil society or from different political alternatives, but it's not basically acceptable. Can I just zero in a little bit uh, now on what was actually in the policy package? So, you know, the, you, you identify in the article very, very clearly um, three particular areas. Perhaps, Javier, you can, you can explain that a bit more. Okay, the first, uh, there are three elements. The first one is the uh, introduction of rates in Spain. Rates were introduced in 2009 after the crash in order to foster international investment into the real Spanish real estate economy. But uh, this didn't work because the, Sp the Spanish real estate economy was crashing. So what they did in 2012, the first reform is to, through policy interve intervention, make rates much more um, profitable. For by, example, rates, by rates, you mean real estate investment trusts, is that right? Okay. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Uh, that's what I meant. And for example, after this reform, they were tax-free. They would not have to pay tax. But in 2009, the legislation forced them to, they must keep the property for seven years. After 2012, they would only have to keep it under three years, fostering a speculative investment, going into the Spanish market under the expectation of, of selling those units after a short period of revaluation. So they changed, these were some of the main reforms. But then um, this new reform was uh, in conflict with the tenants legislation. So what they did immediately was to change tenants' rights, to subordinate tenants' rights in order to adapt them to the new rates legislation. Before this uh, reform, before the policy package, tenants could stay in their home for a minimum of five years without the landlord being able to kick them out. And then after this reform, it was reduced to three years. And during these three years, there could be prices increased if it was packed in the contract also. So it was all basically making it more, more profitable to invest in housing and fa facilitating its liquidity and so. And the last element is that the sold of private housing to Blackstone and Goldman Sachs. No one in 2013, the investment in Spanish real estate was very low because it was every year the prices were going down, were devaluating. So they needed two actors to give a confidence in the in the in Spain, so they sold these housing units to two fundamental actors like Blackstone, who had already been buying thousands of homes in the United States, benefiting from the prices crash. And this, uh, they were sold under under construction costs very low, not only below market price, but even below construction costs. Basically, what the government was fostering is that Blackstone and Goldman Sachs would enter the Spanish market. And it worked very well because after that, Blackstone 
in the next years became the first homeowner in Spain. But when you analyze the new cycle of international funds investing in Spain, uh, this is the first huge acquisition portfolio that was done by two um, huge um, asset funds. And these three policies coordinated from different states agencies controlled by the same uh, political party were all done in a very short period of time. Normally, this type of policies, for example, the tenants' loss reform, usually they are being debated for years. Right now, we're debating a new housing law, and it's been there's been a huge parliamentary debate for over two years. But all of a sudden, as we state in our paper, uh, in 2013, it was transformed very fast in a couple of months. Gee, that's in, in, incredible. So it all sounds incredibly overwhelming and you 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 talk about uh, even in terms of Goldman Sachs and, and uh, others as also almost sort of vulture funds and uh, but is this all inevitable I mean is this only one direction and are there possibilities for for, for alternatives or do we see the same thing happening everywhere the most surpri- surprising one of the most surprising things of when this policy package was approved, it was that at that time, there was a huge mobilization in Spain. After the 15 year movement in 2011, uh, there was a lot of this disaffection um, with the political class and with banks and financial entities. And because the people and the people massively took the streets and started organizing because they saw that the government was responding to the crisis, to the crisis, saving the banks and the institutional investors and the financial sector and not the population, and that the population was losing their jobs, was um, lose, being evicted and losing their house because they couldn't pay their mortgage anymore, and the government was helping the banks and the big powerful agents and not the people. So all this happened in a huge um, mobilization context that actually change had a huge impact on the new political parties that appeared, that questioned the political system. The government that uh, did um, approve this policy package lost government also uh, uh, later on. So, I mean, Spain, after these this years, there was a huge change in the political culture, in society, and in the political system. But actually, with what we see is that with very little support, the government managed, and with the whole, with thousands of people in the streets, they managed to approve this uh, policy package without any debate or without any type of democratic control. This also depends because of the um, on the huge dependence on the Spanish economy, on the real estate sector, and the very close ties between the political class and the real estate sector. Sector, like we've seen in many corruption scandals. Uh, just to put an example, the Sun of former president of Spain, Jose Maria Aznar, is the first person that Cerberus, the asset manager fund, contract hires in Spain as their leader in order to facilitate the, all these investments and all these uh, housing portfolios acquisitions by Cerberus from Spanish banks. So basically, they have a huge lobbying power and there are, uh, uh, there are all these huge connections. What we saw in Denmark, that they approved the anti-Blackstone law some years ago, uh, and Blackstone had to leave the country. This is something that in Spain uh, we've been fighting for, and there's a huge mobilization in favor of this. But uh, still, these agents have a, a very a lot of power. That sounds uh, very interesting. I'm sure that uh, Michael's also got some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, um, I'm thinking that um, what Javi was presenting is that 
uh, everything of this uh, kind of shock happened in a very short time period. And that's quite important to understand why sometimes governments and politicians who want to facilitate uh, global capital entering the country to invest in the country, how they say, this is how they call it, or to make the housing sector more professional. That's another kind of their slogans. They do it as soon as possible, as fast as possible, and without any kind of parliamentary or social control and any kind of uh, democratic debate. And this is really scary because housing, given the, the wall of money that is running all over the world, after uh, the 2000s and the lack of financial regulation in the whole world and money has almost no borders to cross, then uh, they targeted uh, housing in a, in a very strategic sector. And governments like the Spanish government were basically opening the doors with these kind of packages and shock policies to this capital without any restriction. So when we see, when uh, people say, oh, the market is free, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. We think that this is wrong. They they win or they lose according to the policies and the facilitations that governments uh, implement. And this is what is definitely evitable. And this is why we need civic mobilization, we need democratic controls, we need progressive alternative policies in order to make sure that housing at least housing as a social need and a, as a basic right is respected and protected. Otherwise, we ex we saw millions of evictions of people made homeless, overcrowding, and horrible situations over many years, or indebtedness to very, very high rates, which are completely unsustainable in the long term. So definitely the society needs to react and governments, we expect from governments and political parties to do something better than what they did. Thank you both uh, again for, um, for contributing to this podcast and look forward to having you back again some other time soon. Thank you, Julie. Thank you My pleasure. Much. Bye. That was Javier Gil Garcia and Miguel Martinez-Lopez in conversation with Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society. The journal's Twitter handle is at Housing Theory. Next up, we hear from Beth Watts from Housing Studies. She recently caught up with Ryan Powell from the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the University of Sheffield. They're talking about the journal's recent special issue, Towards a Global Housing Studies, Beyond Dichotomy, Normativity and Common Abstraction. Recent iSphere research that explored 13 global cities' efforts to reduce rough sleeping under the Institute of Global Homelessness, a place to call home Vanguard Cities Initiatives, also gets a mention. My name is Dr. Beth Watts-Cobb and I'm speaking to you from Heriot Watt University in Scotland. It's great to be back on the Housing Journal podcast and in this episode, I'll be speaking to you about a great new special issue released at the end of last year in the journal Housing Studies, which looks at towards a global housing studies beyond dichotomy, normativity and common abstraction. This is a great special issue brought together by Ryan Powell and Malik Simone at the University of Sheffield in England. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Ryan Powell to the podcast. So on this episode, we'll be speaking about a very exciting special 
special issue uh, that came out in housing studies last year about global housing studies. So the full title of that special issue is Towards a Global Housing Studies, Beyond Dichotomy, Normativity and Common Abstraction. And I'm really excited to be able to talk with you about that today, Ryan. Hi. Hi, how are you doing, Beth? Very well, thank you. It's good to be back. So the special issue we're talking about, you co-edited with your colleague at Urban Studies at the University of Sheffield, Malik Simone. And it would be really great if you could Tell us a bit about where the special issue came from and your motivations in pulling it together. Yeah, sure. So um, Malik and I had been having some conversations and there, there were broader conversations in um, our department and the Urban Institute at the time around major shifts in, in housing studies globally. And I think off the back of financial crisis, there was a greater awareness of the interconnectedness of different housing systems and um, different trends in different parts of the world. Um, so we wanted to kind of capitalize on that and encourage a more open-minded dialogue towards housing studies and uh, move towards a more kind of global orientation, if you like. And that is, is, is partly underway um, in many respects, but we felt there's perhaps a disconnect between some of some of the work emerging from what's often understood as the global south and um wanted to to connect that back to work in in other parts of the world and really to try and over overcome that that um um dichotomy and to try and move beyond it in some way fantastic well having had a look at the special issue i think i think you've absolutely achieved those aims it's, it's really great contribution to the journal and listeners can access it on the housing studies uh, website it's issue 376 so go and take a look for yourselves um but we'll give you a little taster now so one of the themes running through the special issue uh is that familiar concepts can be reshaped and reinvented um, via research in different contexts or using different theoretical or disciplinary orientations that we might access by engaging with different contexts. Um, can you give an example of that? Um, maybe maybe a paper in special issue that, that did uh, sort of reconnect with a familiar concept and that's left you feeling and thinking a bit differently about it? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So I think a, a really good example there would be the, the paper by Iphigenia Dimitriku, which looks at um, post-crisis Athens. And what um, that paper does is it re-articulates our understanding of vacancy within the city and it situates it within post-crisis Athens and understands vacancy as absence. But what it also does then is it kind of brings people back in. So these inactive spaces of vacancy for for Dimitriku are actually embroiled in all these contestations and struggles over the city. So the space actually becomes kind of relived or um, re-understood. And I think that's um, an understanding which could be um, could be developed and put to use in other geographies as well in other contexts. And similarly, Morton Nielsen's paper looks at spectacular speculation in Maputo Mozambique and um, although he's applying it to that specific African context that has relevance I think for how we might understand high-end investment in um, the global north for want of a better term. 
Mm, great, really, really interesting examples. Um, Another aim was to reconsider and maybe unsettle familiar dichotomies. And you, you talked about that overarching dichotomy between the global north and the global south. Um, so, you know, perhaps you can elaborate on that example or give give a few examples of dichotomies that have shaped housing studies to date, but have maybe been revisited and challenged in the special issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that there's some really good examples of how um, these binaries are um you know can be exceeded or moved beyond and open things up for us in a way as well so i think permanence and temporariness comes into play formal and informal as well as north south and east and west as well but i think um simone tulamello's paper is really interesting because that looks to um critique this north south dichotomy from an explicit southern critique perspective but what he does is he actually talks of um the south of the west so he brings together the southern usa with southern europe to actually understand the inequalities and the often racialized inequalities within those um spaces what we would assume to be the global north mm. so he's really problematizing um concepts and using different scales and entry points with which to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I really liked the the idea in the in the brilliant editorial that you and uh, Malik wrote wrote for the special issue that there are, you know, if 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 we lean into that dichotomy between the global north and south, there are there are souths in the north and north in the souths. And um it really resonated with me. I've been involved in some research myself recently looking at approaches to reducing rough sleeping in 13 very, very diverse um, cities across the globe that, oh. that span that global south-north dichotomy and actually really, really struck by, um, yes, those contexts are very, very different and the nature and the scale of the problems and the politics in those cities really varies. But actually, some of the sort of key findings really resonate um, much yeah. more than I think we might have expected across those. And I, I really, I really felt that was something that came out of this special issue too. So um, it's definite, definitely something I've really valued. Um, was there anything else that, um, any other learning from the special issue that you've, uh, you've really taken away from it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's, I think more potential for um, more collaborations and um, the development of more understanding through reaching out to those parts of the world where, you know, they're not really covered extensively within the pages of journals like like housing studies. And like you, I've found real commonalities and similar threads and themes that have helped me in my own work in um, in in Europe. So there's understandings that we, we can take. And I think informality is a really good one there. So that's an idea. Um, concept where um you know colleagues are, uh, have really pushed that formality in um informality binary sought to exceed it and then it's been brought back to the north i mean there's always been housing informality in the north but bringing that um kind of southern perspective back i think has really helped invigorate that area and there's a whole now burgeoning literature on um global informality which does push push beyond that um very stubborn dichotomy. 
So if to close, if you were going to give sort of one tip or piece of advice to a housing scholar, maybe whose work has been concentrated in a either in the global south or in the global north, focusing or thinking about housing, um, what might that one tip be to kind of um, to further this global housing studies agenda? Yeah, I think I'd say be prepared to unlearn and be prepared to um, be more flexible with our our concepts and our um, orientation, I suppose, in general. That's fantastic. Thanks, Ryan. It's been great to chat to you. And I will make sure that the links to the special issue and to the uh, research on homelessness that I mentioned are in the show notes. And thank you very much to you and Malik for pulling and all the other authors of the special issue for pulling this together. Thank no, you. No, thank you. Thanks a lot. That was Beth Watts from Housing Studies, and you can check out their Twitter handle at Housing Journal. Up last today is Dallas Rogers chatting with David Kelly about the Housing Futures essay, Dwelling Justice, Locating Settler Relations in Research and Activism on Stolen Land. David co-wrote the essay with his colleague at RMIT University, Libby Porter. The essay was a think piece for the IJHP-sponsored Forum for Dwelling Justice in NAM, Melbourne in August 2022, and a forthcoming special issue on the same topic. Hey David, thanks so much for joining the Housing Journal podcast. Straight off the bat, I'm coming in from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney, and we would have loved to have uh, Professor Libby Porter here with us, your co-author, to chat with us today. But uh, you're coming from Melbourne. No, um, unfortunately, we can't be here, but we're both uh, living and working and I'm on Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung language-speaking people's land here in Narm, also known as Melbourne. Uh, we're here to talk about dwelling justice, locating settler relations in research and activism on stolen land. An essay we invited you to write but the essay itself is based in a workshop or started really with a workshop that you recently ran in Melbourne. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the workshop was called the Forum for Dwelling Justice, um, and it took a few years to actually get off the ground. A lot of uh, work with grassroots organisers around housing justice issues, not just housing activism, but also prison abolitionism, First Nations justice and land justice and treaty and those sorts of things. So we held, after years of consultation and engagement with those community members, we held the forum last year in August and we got over 600 attendees. It was at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne. And those attendees were a mixture of grassroots campaigners, activists, but also scholars people with lived experience of dwelling injustice and practitioners who work in homelessness and social work and those sorts of areas. And what we wanted to do was use it as an opportunity to identify the radical potential of resistance to dispossession, displacement and precarity around housing and land, but through the prism of First Nations justice first and foremost. So we wanted to bring to the view that yes, we have a, a deepening and expanding housing crisis, um, but that housing crisis has been here in this place since 1788, which is when the first fleet um, invaded. 
So we framed this as a struggle to dwell. So we were looking for a more capacious term than just housing justice. So we're terming it dwelling justice. So the struggle to dwell in order to bring about new kind of intersections around dwelling precarity, such as carceral and dispossessory logics, as well as racial violence, um, which are all very kind of less discussed intersections within the housing justice field itself. Um, and we had we had some really interesting and powerful uh, participants at the forum. So we had three keynotes, which were all delivered by First Nations activists and intellectuals, such as uh, UN woman Linda Kennedy, um, Gunditjmara activist Senator Lydia Thorpe, and Gunai warrior Robbie Thorpe. Um, and then we had three panels as well. So these panels were looking at the lived experience of uh, dwelling justice and dwelling struggle, and then the kind of intellectual projects was the second panel looking at those sorts of more scholarly contributions to those sorts of academic uh, activist uh, projects. Um, and then third one was what we were terming peer-led struggle for dwelling justice. So these were creative outputs that um, people with lived experience of homelessness, um, of dwelling precarity in private rental and of squatting and incarceration developed documentary films and podcasts and we were, we we're asking them to talk about what those sorts of creative or non-typical outputs were doing for the struggle for dwelling justice. Awesome yeah it uh, got a lot of Twitter coverage and looking on from Sydney it seemed like an amazing workshop. You've written an essay which will go ahead of a special issue in the International Journal of Housing Policy. I want to talk about the special issue in a second because you've got an interesting way of putting that together. But tell me a little bit more about the essay. What do you want to, what are you doing in this essay in terms of framing this debate? Yeah, well, I mean, where the essay, the essay and the workshop came together at the same time. So they weren't, they were never separate things. And the thing that really got us starting on the track of developing that conceptual thought that was in the essay was our frustration and uncomfortability with the work that we were doing in the activist space. So what we were doing was making acknowledgement to country and of First Nations struggle and how housing injustice intersects with all these things, but we weren't walking the walk. We were just kind of having it as an addendum or as a kind of you know intro rather than something that we held throughout our entire activist praxis. And when you say we there, you're kind of talking about a collective we as in like housing scholars or housing activists generally in Australia. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, particularly in Australia as a settler colony um, and my co-author and lead author Libby, uh, Libby Porter um, was instrumental in getting a lot of different people to think about these things at once throughout her career. And what we we're trying to do is bring it to the housing studies field because there was such uh, forgetfulness around the politics of this place and the relationships and the obligations that we have to this place when talking about housing precarity, housing justice and housing policy. Um, so that's there were the underlying logics that we're using to sort of drive both the workshop and the paper. And what we do in the paper is tackle two things initially, and one is the um, the concern around the claims that we're making as activists to redistribute public land and to kind of try to steer 
policy away from privatization of public land. And then the other one was to try and um, argue against the the, um, the the changing governance regimes of those housing tenures. And we were saying that both of those things are kind of red herrings. Like they really don't address First Nation sovereignty. In fact, they erase it. Um, and they really don't get to the heart of the dispossessory logic of housing policy in Australia and the other settler colonies. So those were the kind of two main things that we were grappling with. And the reason why we wanted to bring those to the fore was that um, we're not convinced and we haven't really seen within housing scholarship, particularly in Australia, but also globally, we haven't seen a conceptual grammar around dispossession that really takes heed of where people are. So when talking about dispossession in Australia, we're not talking about the dispossession of or the ongoing dispossession of First Nations people. And when we do talk about it, we talk about it as a kind of historical event. So we really wanted to bring that to the fore again and say, let's start from here where we are and talk about the dispossessory logics that underpin all sorts of dwelling in this land. Awesome. Yeah, it's a fa fascinating essay and recommend it to everybody. You've got a special issue in train that comes out of this work you've been doing. The workshop was part of that, but it includes some interesting ways of doing research and writing papers. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, we invited, we put out a call late last year for people to contribute to a special issue. Um, and what we asked them to do first was to read the essay that we'd, we'd written and say, take take stock of that and try to kind of get to grips with the actual relations that we're talking about and the obligations that we're talking about. Um, and we invited uh, conceptually novel, but also um, alternative ways of representing the empirical data that people are grappling with in their places. Um, and we've received we received a good response. We had about 22 abstracts received. And then we, of course, went through the process of inviting full papers, which we should um, have a full kind of assemblage of papers by mid-July this year. Um, and what we were asking was them to platform the contemporary scholarship and activist projects. So not just purely scholarly works, but activist projects as well that wrestle with the dynamics that we have in that paper. Um, and we wanted to bring together contributions that examined where and how housing policy in particular as this kind of phenomenological thing intersects with coloniality, carcerality, global finance, militarism, et cetera. Um, and we were asking them to take a very relational approach to that housing question. Um, so we're kind of we're very keen to see how they turn out. And we have an assemblage of papers from around the world um, in settler colonial contexts such as South America, North America, Europe, and Australia. And um, so we're really keen to see how those are expressed in, in the types of formats that we get back. The essay is so fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to reading the special issues paper. But about it for us for now. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. That was Dallas Rogers, my co-editor at the International Journal of Housing Policy. Before we head off today, we're keen to let you know about some changes in the editorial team at the journal. 
Dallas and I have had a fantastic four years at the journal and with our team we've seen the journal go from strength to strength. We end our term with the journal at the end of 2023 and we were joined in January this year by Dr. Sophia Malson from the University of Sydney and Dr. Megan Nethercote from the University of Melbourne who have stepped up as the next editors-in-chief. We're really looking forward to seeing where they take the journal in the next few years. In the meantime, you can catch up with the whole team on Twitter at IJHP Editors. And that's a wrap from us here today. We look forward to chatting with you again next time at the Housing Journal Podcast. Thank you.